Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. So David, ever hear of Al Kelly? Al Kelly? Yes. Is this a, is this a guy related to that uh, R. Kelly uh, hip-hop artist? Or Oh, no, 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 no. Al Someone Kelly else. was a former vaudeville-type comedian who had one shtick. Now, in those days of vaudeville, which is before your time, before my time even, amazingly <laughs> enough, and I know you're laughing because you're not sure about this. Well, I but, thought you were about 400 years old. Aren't uh, you like a vampire? Well, I didn't want to tell our listeners. We'll oh, do a I'm show sorry. on vampirism We, we can't on. scare them yet. Yeah, we shouldn't scare them yet. This is our first show to be heard at a Las Vegas traditional terrestrial radio station, KLAV. I don't want people to assume we're that crazy. Let them listen to a few episodes before they realize that. Al yeah. Kelly <laughs> was this former vaudeville comedian. And in, in vaudeville, you could have one shtick, you know, do one thing that lasts maybe five minutes and make a career of it because there wasn't television or radio where you'd have to have new material every week or every day. So he'd come on a show or go on stage, and he was a double-talk expert. So, for example, if he was talking about the OTC-X1 spacecraft, he'd talk about the two cylindrical saucers that come together in a pipe. And three or four times, he put these together, and it makes a poop. Now, the reason I thought about this is because over at the ProjectCamelot.org website, they have material about the late Otis T. Carr and his alleged invention of this X-1 craft, which was a flying saucer supposed to use free energy and all that stuff, okay? It's an anti-gravity machine. Indeed. So yeah. they have an extensive quotation from a Long John Nebel radio show from the 1950s. And John asks Otis T. Carr to explain what the principles are about. Mm-hmm. So he goes on with a paragraph of this stuff. And John says, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I thought, gee, Otis T. Carr must be related to Al Kelly because he's using double talk. But I read everything. And there are a couple of things here that didn't make sense to me to be perfectly serious about it. And number one, he's trying to explain to the guests, which include John Nebel and his group of regulars who would get on there. And they would be his hatchet men. So if he said, give this guy hell, they would get on there and they'd rip a guy apart with John's assistance, of course. In this oh, oh, wait a minute. Were, were they ripping the guy apart from a personality point of view or were they questioning... The statements in terms of a factual basis. Well, it sounded to me like they were actually trying to question the statements. They weren't ripping him apart in this particular interview. But they asked him about a couple of different things, and he comes up with a statement that one plus one equals three. (laughs) This sounds very Orwellian in nature. Okay. Secondly, that each planetary system has its own laws of physics. Really? Carr was asked whether his ship could exceed the speed of light. And he said it depended on the planetary system's laws of physics. Now, some of the people in the Project Serpo case are all talking about Serpo and that particular planetary system having its own unique laws of physics, too. So I believe that it could be possible that a planet would have its own time system based on its orbit around its local star. But to say that any planetary system has its own physical Reality, its own sets of physical laws that are unique to it, that's just sort of nonsensical. Well, even worse, apparently, according to some of the documents I've read about Project Serpo, the Serpians, or whatever they are, do not use clocks. I see, they don't use clocks. Uh, what do they use? Uh, sandiles? Uh, what, what exactly are we talking about here? 
it sounded to me like sundials, which is ridiculous. We have a planetary yeah, in, inhabitants know. who are able to travel amongst the stars. Okay, way advanced over Earthlings. All right, mm-hmm. but they use sundials. I have problems with that. I have a number of issues with the whole Serpo case, down to the notion that. There are only 100,000 of these beings on the planet. How could you sustain a race? Well, I read another report that said it was 650,000. Really? So they can't even get the numbers straight. Right. And Uh, 650,000, they use population control because Serpo's conditions are somewhat hazardous, and therefore they don't want to have a large population. I would think, though, that a race that advanced would be able to do some terraforming, don't you? Well, terraforming or basically establishing colonies on other planets that were already ready to receive life. You know, terraforming is an, is a valuable notion. It's a valid notion if you have a society that advanced, a civilization that has the ability of traveling between stars. But if that were in, indeed the case, couldn't you find other planets that were already pretty close to what your home planet was and simply do a little bit of tweaking? The idea of terraforming is that you're starting from scratch. Why start from scratch? If you can travel to other planets, you could potentially find a planet that had maybe 80, 90% of what you needed and do a little bit of tweaking to get it to that final 10 or 20% so that it's a habitable planet for you. I, yeah, the, listen, the Project Serpo situation is problematic on a number of different levels, and I'm sure we'll be talking more about that in future shows. Yes, and I almost look at this with the point of view of why would they post something that seems on the surface so absurd okay uh well why is half of the ufo field so absurd it's just the signal to noise ratio gene there are a lot of people that are curious to participate in this field they're they're interested they're motivated some of them want to earn a living writing about it i mean as far as the project serpo stuff there, there are aspects of it that seem to me to reflect a lot of what we saw in the John Titor case, which is that you've got this whole story that's been developed with all of these understories that support the main story, almost as if uh, these things are going to become movies at some point. I would think even the movies have a bit more logic behind them. But then I wonder <laughs> about the disinformation aspect, that if you fill the UFO field with so much nonsense that nobody takes it seriously or fewer people take it seriously, that there is a tiny bit of factual information that does get through. Now, our guest this evening is somebody I hope can help us find the factual information amongst the nonsense, and that, of course, is Stanton Friedman, a nuclear physicist considered one of the major investigators in the UFO field. And there are lots of things he doesn't accept about UFOs. He has a fair degree of skepticism about some of these claims, and that's something that we really need to explore because maybe he could tell us or help us and help you listeners figure out why we have all this craziness going on and find a kernel of truth if there is a kernel of truth to be found. Well, it's pretty clear that no single person, Gene, has the absolute truth about any of this. True. At this point, this is all just a bunch of opinions and uh, conjecture. It, it, it would really make me wary if someone said, in any aspect of life, I've got all the answers. No one has all the answers to anything. Stanton certainly has been involved with this field long enough to have had the time 
and the experience to formulate what are probably some fairly good ideas. But I'm actually going to ask Stanton a question on today's show that uh, might make him very upset with me as far as trying to figure out where these things might really come from. I, I have some somewhat problematic questions, I think, about sourcing these beings if they do exist. And uh, we're going to see how Stanton responds to those questions tonight. And that's coming next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Tonight is the first night that we're going to be in Vegas, so I thought we'd start off the show with a maybe a little bit of controversy. Maybe not so much controversy, but uh, <laughs> only a little just, bit. Just a little bit. Oh, we'll, we'll we'll ramp it up as the show proceeds. Stanton, you've been in this field for a long time, and uh, you've had a chance to meet most of the players in the UFO field. Why is there such extreme emotion in this field? Why do people seem to get so involved in arguing about the personalities instead of the cases? Isn't the topic interesting enough without involving people's egos? What do you think about that? Well, uh, yeah, I wish it were. It's a field that is unregulated. There are no standards. There are no tests you have to pass. I mean, I belong to the American Physical Society, and just about everybody in the Physical Society has a degree in physics. But in UFO uh, you know, read one book, carry a briefcase, and you're an expert. And for some people, it's become a way to be somebody, which mm -hmm. they otherwise couldn't manage because they can pretend to be expert, and they can get away with it, and because the public doesn't have great expectations, and because also the climate of ridicule that's been engendered by the nasty, noisy negativists with a little cooperation from the ignorant media, and there's a lot of that going around, discourages respectable people from getting involved. Uh, I mean, look, I've worked for myself for, what, 36 years now, I guess, and so I don't need to worry about what the, the head of the department says. The academics are particularly, it, it's truly incredible, they get tenure. They're so afraid to speak out because somebody might link their name with the UFOs. And so their relative silence and their refuse to take, refusal to take to task the noisy negativists. I mean, how people as divergent as, say, Isaac Asimov and Carl Sagan could get away with saying some of the really dumb things they've said and not be challenged by other than people like me it is truly incredible. And you couple that with the free ride from the SETI cultists who are being adored in some parts of the media anyway, 
and being gifted with lots of money by people like Paul Allen, and you have a, a field that is not in good shape. It's a handicapped field. Now, you bring it's up something that uh, Isaac Asimov said, and he, I have to tell you, he is one of my personal heroes. I'm curious to know, what did he say that caused you to get aggravated? Well, I wrote a whole paper back in 1977. I just happened to be rereading it this morning because somebody brought up one of his uh, arguments. And he obviously didn't know anything about the subject, but he did an article in uh, Fantasy and Science Fiction, I think it was, where he had a regular column. And then, much worse, an article in uh, TV Guide, you know, which only goes to 18 million people. Well, not anymore, however. <laughs> They're on hard times, but that's another story. Well, okay, but uh, the point is, uh, that had a, if, if you want a major impact, get an article on something like that, or with Carl Sagan in Parade Magazine. You know, how many read that every Sunday kind of thing? Yeah, that's mass media, absolutely. Yeah, and so... Asimov made nasty remarks about all the kooks and quacks connected with the subject. He liked Alan Hynek because apparently he knew him, but he, he did some totally unscientific calculations, setting up a straw man to show how impossible it would be for somebody to come here. I mean, a guy's got a Ph.D. in biochemistry. I think he could get his reasoning correct, like saying its systems are randomly distributed and then using the distance between this on a totally baseless calculation as being the distance to the nearest civilization. I mean, heck, when I lived in uh, the Bay Area in California, uh, the distance to the nearest big city, a metropolitan area, however you define that, was about 20 miles. But the average distance to the 10 largest cities was many hundreds of miles. You cannot say if I'm planning a trip to any of those 10 large cities, uh, it's got to last, you know, uh, i got to drive a whole day. It was a 45-minute drive when the traffic wasn't too bad. So Isaac made a, a stupid calculation, and then he compounded it by making claims that, you know, all essentially that there's a lot of cooks and quacks in the field, and all sightings can be explained if you have enough data and stuff like that. No reference, no nothing, and I fired back a strong response, part of which got published. And then when uh, I sent him a copy of the paper in which I tore what he said and what Ben Boba and Arthur C. Clarke, the three gods of science fiction, said, uh, I got a postcard back. You know, he's famous for, uh, was famous for responding to all communications. He sends me a postcard saying, uh, just so you'll know that I received your letter and I will not respond to it or anything else, so you won't, don't bother sending me another one. Uh, <laughs> nice, <laughs> I mean, nice man, nice man. It's the arrogance that gets to me. He gives no references. And when I mentioned Carl Say, I mean, Carl and I were classmates for three years. You know, we knew each other pretty well. Because uh, it was a small group of us going through the same courses at the University of Chicago. And he gets away with saying something like this, that there are interesting sightings that aren't reliable and reliable sightings that aren't interesting, both of which are true statements. But there are no interesting and reliable sightings, which is total nonsense. All you have to do is look at Blue Book Special Report 14, to which he had been referenced several times, uh, and of course never gets mentioned by the noisy negativist. And there you find the better the quality of the sighting, the more likely to be unidentifiable. And, you know, when you talk about kooks and quacks in, in the Blue Book Special Report 14, they found that one and a half percent of the cases had to be listed as psychological aberrations. That's a very polite way of saying crackpot cases, okay? <laughs> one and a half percent. 
And the American Physical Society says that 2% of the papers submitted to it by physicists are crackpot papers. So there's no surprise that there's some crackpots. It would be astonishing if there weren't. But let's not make it sound like that's what the field is full of. So what I'm saying is the respectable, responsible individuals are very wary of sticking their neck out. They're not going to waste their time, and they're not going to be able to publish anything in their view. And that's mostly for academics who have these problems. I spent my life in industry, my early working life, if you will. And I got permission from Westinghouse to say what I pleased on my time, to identify myself as a Westinghouse nuclear physicist, as long as I would uh, start my lectures with a disclaimer that the views you're about to hear are mine and mine alone and not those of my employer, which I thought was very reasonable. So what did I have to be afraid of? I asked for an opinion. I got it. I went ahead. As a matter of fact, they paid my way to talk to the American Nuclear Society chapter in Los Alamos and the Electrical Electronic Engineers Group in Wilmington, Delaware, went on expense accounts in full knowledge of what I was doing. So, you know, if you make an ass out of yourself, don't expect your employer to support you. But <laughs> so I think the personality stuff, it really bugs me. And part of it is, maybe it's the Internet, I don't know, but too many people listen to what people say and believe that they're, everybody tells the truth all the time. I mean, they can tell who's telling the truth by who's sincere. And I long ago learned, maybe it's just because I'm an old man, that uh, nobody can tell who is telling the truth just by listening to them. Sincerity is also the mark of a con man, isn't it? I mean, how does he get by? You know, so, yeah, Vegas has had more than its share, whether it's Bob Lazar or what was his name, Goodman, or uh, Milton William Cooper hung around there for a while, and, you know, and, yeah, I've come down hard against some of these people, and I get attacked for it. And, gee, how can you not believe in me? So sincere. How many times have I heard that? <laughs> so, you know, I wish there was something I could do about it. But there is no uh, group overall ufologist. You don't need a certificate in ufology <laughs> to speak out. Like I say, you need to read two books, maybe one and a half will do it, and carry a briefcase. That makes you an expert. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Just a reminder, if you're new to the show, visit our website at www.thepowercast.com. That's www.thepowercast.com. There you can download past episodes of the show, check out our message boards, and if you have a question or a comment, write us at news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. Hey, I have to go fit myself for a briefcase, but I have to tell our listeners you're in the Powercast with Gene Stein. And David Bietti, I am now looking for a really good briefcase, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking to Stanton Friedman, and he is a nuclear physicist, author of several very important books on UFOs, has been around the world lecturing on the subject. And we're talking about separating the wheat from the chaff. And, you know, Stanton, it's bad enough to deal with scientists who don't want to look over their shoulders at 
yeah. different aspects of possible realities or things that might be authentic. But then you go online, and there's so many different claims online, so many right. red herrings. It drives you nuts. And on our show, we've had a few things, and one where we actually had the guest on twice, and it started such a flame war in our message boards that the person we had on, we don't even mention his name. We say, he who shall not be named. That's how bad it got. That's a biblical commentary, isn't it? Almost. Yeah. The Internet is a real pain in the butt. I mean, there the Internet is great for getting information that you'd have to spend a lot of time looking for elsewhere. You know, I was looking for a reference to a silly comment by Dr. Donald Menzel about the all UFO sightings are by poor observers. And I plugged a long phrase like that into the Internet in my searcher. And... Uh, I pops the reference. I had published the reference, but I couldn't find it. And there it was on the internet, and it told me exactly what I wanted, what I had said umpteen years ago. <laughs> I was passing, trying to find it in my office here. <laughs> you know, so things like that. Who won the Nobel Prize in 1963 in physics? These are things that it is really nice to be able to check into. But there is no standard anywhere. I, I recently, unfortunately, read the review this article about me in Wikipedia. Is it Wiki or Wiki? I don't know. Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Yeah. That's right. And there's a, a few comments in there, and I'm trying to figure out who the heck wrote this nonsense? They mentioned some of the programs I was connected with and then said, oh, they were all just paper studies. What? I mean, come on, I was doing experiments, spending a lot of money in a lot of places. We were building systems and testing them, and this is a paper study? So, you know, how does this trash get there? Nobody asked me to look at it. It boils down to this, Stan. Just because you have information certainly doesn't mean you have knowledge or much less the truth. That's kind of what it boils down to on the Internet. And the fact that you've stated it's true, that uh, there is no editorial control on the Internet, that's its greatest strength in some ways, and that it's harder to control information on the Internet, which, of course, is its greatest weakness, and that it's really hard to control the quality of information on the internet yeah i got asked some questions about mj12 was it yesterday i guess somebody complaining uh, about what i supposedly said somewhere and you know i published information that relates to that in a report i did back in 1989 for goodness sake and some of it's in the uh, there's a new last year edition of my uh, top secret magic which I go into gory detail, and yet somebody is claiming, in effect, that I'm saying that all the MJ-12 documents are genuine. Well, I've never said that, and I have explicitly shown why a bunch of them are fraudulent. And it, it's on the Internet, but they didn't look at it. I've got a paper uh, update on Majestic 12 documents. And so, you know, it, it's aggravating. I, I don't spend much time looking for UFO stuff on the Internet. Because I could spend all my life, you, you put my name in Google and you get something like 60000 I haven't done it in the last month or so, so maybe it's more. I don't know. <laughs> Since you asked, let's see. Okay, just a moment. Since you asked, it is 978000 What, for Stanton Friedman? <laughs> yes. Uh, come on, with quotes around the Stanton Friedman? Well, that's the trick, right? I'm going to do that right here on my machine. Let's you see what do I that get. Because there are a lot of Friedmans out there. Okay, here it's we a go. Solid name. Seventy-four thousand three hundred. It's almost like we're doing it in unison yeah. here. <laughs> 
Yeah, real time. And this is research, man. 74,000. You know, that is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, they can go to my website, uh, www.stantonfriedman.com, which ought to be mentioned in the top 10 hits there. But, you know, it, it can be aggravating. Uh, and on the one hand, I must admit, I am old enough to be impressed by the fact that Google could tell you that in what, half a second? Something like that. Point mm-hmm. two seven seconds. <laughs> and you're number one, by the way, with a bullet, Stan. Oh, okay. The, the kicker here is that I, I think young people don't realize how extraordinary it is that a computer sitting somewhere can look through billions and billions of entries and pop that out and look at the difference. Did you notice that that's, what, one-tenth the number you got when you didn't put the quotes around it? Right. Yeah. A little less than that. Uh, and then it can do all that in no time flat. You know, when I think of all the hours I spent in library <laughs> looking in abstract journals for stuff when I was younger. Uh, so, you know, I, I have to give the Internet a pat on the back and Google, too. But it doesn't mean i got to believe everything that it shows up. <laughs> Who, who's the latest subject of distress in Vegas? <laughs> Let's ask about a topic that uh, is a bit problematic in the UFO field, Stan, and I'm very curious to know what your take on this is. There's a theme that's come up on our show recently, time and time again, and it's something that's come up in my discussions with uh, people who are both you know, claim to be experiencers of UFO phenomena, and also people who have just had a long involvement in this field. There are some questions about the following notion, and feel free to laugh at me right off the air, but in talking about the sourcing of these things, these beings, let's assume they exist for a minute and uh, that they're visiting us, there's been some discussion about the potential. And I, I'm, I'm on the fence about this, so I'll just throw this out to you and see what your response is. This potential of perhaps these visitors not coming from other planets as we would think of them, but from other dimensional realities. From yeah. What do you think about this topic, Stan? Well, I, I, I get down on this talk about uh, fourth dimensional space-time warping and wormholes and white holes and all the rest of that. It seems to me this is a refuge, this explanation, for people who are unwilling to do their homework about technology and how it evolves and what we already know. I gave a paper at a conference in uh, New York uh, earlier this week talking about travel to the stars, question mark, yes, exclamation point. And what I have found uh, is that the people who are stuck in that position, well, you know, they can't really, the laws of physics prohibit they're just uh, traveling here by a spaceship of some sort. So there must be some other explanation. And so we have time travel, string theory, space-time warping, and all that sort of stuff. And that gets around us having to deal with anything in the real world and, and so forth. And I find that that's a lazy man way out. I'm not one who's enamored of theory, uh, partly because my mathematical background isn't what it should be to deal with 11-dimensional string theory, and which has never put forth an experiment that can demonstrate that string theory is meaningful other than in the heads of the theoretical people who have fun with it. I presume that's why they do it anyway, uh, and show how smart they are. And so I, I think it's a fallback position for people 
who haven't done their homework about technology. You know, let's take a simple point of this. Uh, if you want to go 39 light years away, the distance is eight reticuli, one or two. Uh, let's see, that would be a minimum of 39 years out, a minimum of 39 years back, and 78 years seems like a very long time for a pilot to be functioning and all the rest of that. Well, but the fact of the matter is, and that's because of Einstein, of course, saying the fastest you can go is the speed of light. As you get close to the speed of light, time slows down for things moving that fast. And it slows down a heck of a lot. At 99.99% of the speed of light, you can go that distance in six months pilot time. We've had guys in space for six months. Let's back off from that and then further point out, there's no reason to say that they're coming here from Zeta Reticuli every time you see somebody just popped over and now he's got to pop back. That's not how the real world works. It's a corny example and I've used it before, but I once did 25 lectures in 35 days in 15 states. I wasn't home from the time I left for the first one until I came back from the last one. And your wife really loved that because she had all that freedom to keep the bedroom <laughs> yeah. clean. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits this is the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietney you never know what's going to happen next You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we're talking to Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist, UFO investigator. If you go to stantonfriedman.com or click on the link at our website, thepowercast.com, to go there, you can learn about his various writings, about his books and all that stuff. And now we're talking about travel across the stars or at least into 15 cities where you're giving lectures. And as you say, Stan, you don't go back each time. You stay there, you go to the hotel, so maybe there are hotels that are housing the aliens, or maybe they have a base somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, it, it, it was a busy trip, but in five weeks, uh, 25 lectures. And what I'm getting at here is everything depends on your vision of how the, the world outside Earth works. If you think there ain't nobody out there except maybe a thousand light years away, that's the latest number for the SETI specialists, then you say it's rare for anybody to come here and they got to use these extraordinary techniques and so forth. You know, go back 150 years and tell people that uh, from a major city in the United States, you'd be able to fly to any of 100 cities around the world in less than 20 hours. My longest flight ever was from Newark, New Jersey to to uh, Hong Kong, 16 hours and a half. If I said that to somebody 150 years ago, they said, but Stan, the fastest sailboat, sailing ship, only moves maybe 20 miles an hour. 
So how could you go to all these places? And what happens if they're not on the ocean? You know? But we don't use sailing ships to go long distances. And, you know, the space station uh, moves uh, in 90 minutes. It goes about uh, 25,000 miles, hour and a half, roughly. So we needed a different frame of reference. My frame of reference is that we are the primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare, who's stuck out here, and we're surrounded by other civilizations where they've been traipsing around using advanced techniques for millennia. Now, how do I come to such a crazy conclusion? Because unlike Bishop Usher, who claimed that the... Uh, you know, the world, the universe was created in 4004 B.C. on a Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock. I know that the universe is at least 10 billion years old. And I further know that we've only had our advanced technology uh, for a few thousand years at most, really uh, more like 100 years. So with that, it's our ego that says, well, we're as advanced as anybody else out there. And I'm sure that's what the natives said when, uh, when Columbus visited, you know. And they were pretty close. <laughs> So I don't consider us the crown of creation. The city people do. I consider us a backward corner, which is, of course, of interest to all the other guys in the neighborhood because we're such nasty beings. Where our major effort goes into killing, to destroying, not to feeding, not to housing, not in taking care of. Look how the budgets of the world are spent. And with that short history behind us, how in the world could any reasonable person presume that we're the big shots in the neighborhood instead of the idiots in the corner? And, you know, uh, I, an analogy that uh, I love from a woman, Beatrice, whatever her name was, in uh, Europe, a physicist, that we're not the crown of creation. It's much more likely we're like the apes in the nature preserve in Africa who have no idea what's going around outside of them. So as soon as you presume that there has been technology around for you know, a million or 10 million or a billion years, that changes everything. You'd think we would learn from our own history of how rapidly things have changed just within our lifetimes, no less the last 100 or 200 years. I mean, you know, I, I'm not using my slide rule anymore, guys. Uh, at least I don't know. I'm not sure I know what <laughs> Well, the thing is, Stan, based on what you've just said, though, one could say that string theory is not a pseudoscience, that it's a proto-science. It's, it's an endeavor that's fairly early on in its history. Yeah. And perhaps 150 years from now, people will look back and look at this discussion and say, gee, they didn't understand that there were other alternate universes coexisting at the same time? Gee, well, that's God, right. they but were... That's a, is that a position that we should put up forward instead of a fallback position? Well, no, I'm just saying, all I'm saying is that it's, it's an interesting notion that perhaps, again, when we talk about the sourcing of these visitors, and we always talk about other planets, that we can't deny the possibility. Again, I'm just saying possibility, not probability. Yeah, no, I understand that. And all I'm right. saying is, yes, Friedman's Law says technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way, that the future is not an extrapolation of the past. So that leaves string theory out there, maybe. What I'm saying is, before you go there, however, you should look at what can be done with new nuclear fusion, nuclear fission. The noisy negativists never talk about these things, and certainly the academics don't talk about them. I mean, let's face it, we tested nuclear fission rockets on the ground 
in the late 1960s, a number of them. Now, you won't hear this from the academics. I worked on them. I had some experiments on one. It was a very great day when the damn thing ran, you know, and we got our data. But that was in the late 60s already. Nuclear fusion. Now, I mentioned I like fusion for this reason. Every advanced civilization will learn how its star produces its mm -hmm. energy. Mm -hmm. We finally did that in about 1937, I think it was. Before that, you know, it's a mass of burning gas up there. Well, as soon as you figure out, and there were some great scientists that did this, that, hey, uh, that's not burning gas, that's nuclear fusion. And uh, it wasn't too many years after that that we tested the first H-bomb, which is also nuclear fusion, 15 years, which is nothing on a, you know, time scale. Can you imagine what, uh, if you'd been able to watch Mike, the first fusion, the first H-bomb, tested in the late 1952, had a fireball that was three miles wide. <laughs> this is a 10 megaton weapon versus 15 kilotons, 15,000 tons versus 10 million tons of TNT equivalent, uh, 15,000 roughly uh, Hiroshima. So, you know, uh, 600 times greater in uh, that time period, only seven years. So nuclear fusion, I worked on fusion propulsion systems, a study thereof indeed, and you can kick stuff out the back end of a rocket that have 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in the dumb old chemical rocket. So before we skip all the technology we've already worked on and jump to fourth dimensional space-time warping, let's consider the reality and also I mean, I was disappointed. I was on with uh, Mishu Kaku. We did a, a radio program. And he starts off by talking about he realized that how much energy it would take to the, get to the next galaxy. When he, and my point is, why are you worried about another galaxy? Oh, yeah. The galaxy over is a million light years, but I'm worried about 40 light years. You know, I, I can use my bicycle if I had one to go down to the store a mile away. I certainly can't use it to visit Hong Kong and come back within a week. So it, it's this unrealistic element that, that jumps into these things. And I see where SETI is pushing more for greater and greater distances because they haven't picked up any signal yet. <laughs> you know, also, this whole question of intelligent behavior. Why in the world would advanced civilizations put up beacons to attract the attention of primitive societies like ours. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hey, let me stop there for one second and tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking with nuclear physicists, UFO researchers, Stanton Friedman. Go to stantonfriedman.com for more or check out the 74,000 separate listings on Google. <laughs> so why would the aliens want a primitive society to know about them? Well, probably they don't. So... We can just say how we act. In other words, did the Spaniards send out radio signals waiting for the natives in the New World to respond? I mean, uh, beyond that, 
this whole question of why anybody would come here, I've heard some of the silliest notions. To me, I, I accept one thing about intelligent life. It's concerned about its own survival. If it isn't intelligent, maybe it isn't. And if it isn't intelligent enough, maybe it doesn't. But any society that's going to last for a while, that's its first concern is survival and security. So who wants the idiots in the neighborhood to be allowed to run loose where the sensible people are? And, you know, we're the idiots in the neighborhood. So I've gotten a whole bunch of reasons. I'm going to be doing a paper at the fourth annual crash retrieval conference in Las Vegas, incidentally, in November. The UFO why questions, W-H-Y. And we'll see how many. I My last list, which was done a number of years ago, only had 26 reasons for coming to planet Earth. But, you know, if you were to interview the people at any major airport and ask why they're traveling, you're going to get a lot of different reasons. There isn't one reason. You know, there are sports teams. There are guys going to see their girlfriend. There are mining engineers. Uh, mining engineering, incidentally, has been a major purpose in lots of migrations of people, hasn't it? You know, go west, young man, the gold, California gold rush, the Klondike gold rush. There have been guys gone down to to Australia for the gold down there. We're a dense planet. We got lots of goodies here. That's not an assertion about the people here. Maybe it's true, but I mean the actual planet itself. So if you have the means for travel, just like communication, you will do all kinds of things. You remember when computers first came into public discussion? What would you use a home computer for? Well, to keep your check book and recipes and that's about it isn't it you remember that even ibm thought that way didn't they well not exactly um the very first machines that were in the home were really just tests of technology the altair but by the time the apple II arrived on the scene there was a piece of software called visicalc that established the microcomputer as a very viable business tool so, uh, you know, when it comes to the history of microcomputers, uh, the truth is that in terms of the home, there were a number of applications, and, and we also have to remember that the Apple II, when it originally came out, was incredibly strong in the area of education. There was a tremendous amount of educational software that existed for it. So, um, and this is, of course, coming on the heels of uh, the chip that was in the Apple II, the uh, 6502, which was actually in the Apollo uh, spaceship. That, that chip got us to the moon. Well, what I'm what I'm trying to say is there was a lack of vision, if you will. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Uh, as to what would be done, and who was it? Well, some big wheel said all you'd need would be a half a dozen mainframe computers and stuff like that. What's a laser good for, after all? Physics experiments, nothing else. Forget the supermarket <laughs> checkout counter and attaching that retina. And, you know, we have a, a different kind of example. The first nuclear submarine, which was pushed by Admiral Rickover, the battleship boys fought that like crazy. They wanted the dough. What are you building submarines for? What can you do with a submarine? Oh, once they had the submarine, then we developed the Polaris missile. Oh, you can hide those under the water and nobody will know where you are. So if somebody fires away at you, you can retaliate without his interfering. Oh, so and what I'm saying is once you've got technology, you can do all kinds of things. Sure. And uh, that includes travel to nearby. I t always talk about nearby galactic neighborhood. I keep seeing this word intergalactic. 
between the galaxies, and that makes me mad every time I see it. Look, there's a couple, we, we don't know how many, but let's say 200 billion stars in the galaxy. Some people say 100 billion, some say 300 billion. I mean, what's 100 billion stars between friends? What the heck? <laughs> the point is, it's a very large number. And so why in the world would you worry about going to other galaxies? And why would anybody in another galaxy point out the solar system, hey, that's the place we want to go for our vacation. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty unlikely. Yeah, Yeah. when you look at the local neighborhood, there's a 1,000 stars within 54 light years. That means that within 100 light years, there are approximately 8,000 stars. And with that 1,000 light years that the SETI people want to take, uh, we're talking uh, several million stars. That's a big enough region. You know, and to think we're the one of the advanced groups in that number of stars seems absurd to me because of our short lifetime. Now, I'm not saying there weren't other civilizations here a million years ago that destroyed themselves. That's possible, too. So maybe these guys are out checking on uh, the, the legends in the book. We had a colony here a million years ago. What happened to it? Yeah. <laughs> Penal colony, of course. But <laughs> Hey, Georgia and Australia, don't forget. Started by convicts. <laughs> now, what, what I'm trying to say is, what I see is a lack of willingness to examine the real world. I mean, sure, there was a guy who calculated an astronomer that you, to get to the moon and a man to the moon and back, the original launch weight of the rocket would be a million million tons. It was off by a factor of three hundred million. So that makes us pause. Now, wait a minute. Let's be a little careful here. What assumptions are being made in these? calculations, if you can call them that. And so I, I'm, a, I'm a pragmatist. Uh, I want to know what we've already done and where that could lead us. That's why I like fusion or fission. And why aren't we building fusion rockets? Because we don't have a goal for a fusion rocket right now. Costs a lot of dough. You know, there are people who say we shouldn't have put up the, the space station. Costs a lot of dough. And if something happens to the shuttle with another big hunk of the space station, uh, there'll be more people shouting that. But I'm trying to be realistic. When we look at the evidence, we seem to be dealing with metallic objects manufactured someplace else, containing beings created and born someplace else. Why is that a big deal to people? That's what I want to know. Well, there's more to it than that. We are assuming... Of course, we're assuming here that since, as far as we're concerned, it would be easier to posit a civilization 40 light years from us than to develop theories about other dimensions. But the point is, in practical fact, we don't know. We're just making educated guesses, and our educated guesses may not mean much as far as the rest of the universe is concerned. But it raises another subject, too, which is that there have been a lot of red herrings in the UFO field in... <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> we have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, $19.95 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to 
www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295, or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Never know what's going to happen next. Just a reminder if you're new to the show, visit our website at www.thepowercast.com. That's www.thepowercast.com. There you can download past episodes of the show, check out our message boards, and if you have a question or a comment, write us at news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. You're in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. And we're talking to Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist, man about town. I wanted to add that credit to you, okay, because you've been around the world. Man about town who invented the technique to hide. No, we don't want to do that. He's not that person. Anyway, (laughs) you go to stantonfriedman.com and you learn more about the things. But we talk about the red herrings here. And red herrings are these crazy stories, of course, that we mentioned briefly to come up. Like, for example, you've heard the one Project Serpo, which suggests that we had an exchange program with the aliens. And I know from the sound of silence, you're not even laughing at that. But well, No, I wrote a column for my MUFON journal. I do a monthly column. And uh, anybody who writes me at uh, F-S-P-H-Y-S, that's Flying Saucer Physicist, if you want to know where those crazy letters come from, <laughs> at <laughs> rogers.com, I'll forward a copy of my project. I did this twice yesterday because all of a sudden I had two more questions about Serpo. My own, uh, the bottom line of the column was that I'd read a number of the articles. UFO magazine had almost the whole issue, you know, devoted to that cover story and all that. And there are so many inconsistencies between what we know about Zeta Reticuli. I kind of resent the fact I'm the first one who put Zeta Reticuli on the map, writing about Marjorie Fish's fine star map work. And uh, Explain to folks who don't know who Marjorie Fish was what that okay. meant. Please. Okay. We have the famous Betty and Barney Hill story, as described in the excellent book, The Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller. And Betty Hill, under hypnosis, relives how she's trying to get the leader of this crew of strange beings that have taken her and Barney aboard their craft in New Hampshire in 1961 to tell her where he's from. And some nice guy alien, he shows her what I can only describe as a three-dimensional model, probably a hologram, of our local galactic neighborhood. And there are different kinds of lines, supposedly trade routes and occasional expeditions and heavy trade routes uh, connecting about a dozen stars, points of light that supposedly stand for stars. Okay, now what sense can we, and Betty, (laughs) ask him, well, where are you on the map? And the alien wise guy says, well, do you know where you are? 
He says, no, I don't know anything about astronomy. Well, how can I tell you where I'm from if you don't know where you're at? End of discussion. Well, Dr. Benjamin Simon, who was doing the hypnosis, the regressive medical hypnosis, an expert on treating shell shock war veterans who'd had what we would today call post-traumatic stress syndrome. They used to call it shell shock in World War II. Uh, Dr. Simon, who is mystified by this whole business, asked her if she can remember what the map looks like. She says yes, and he asked her to draw it later if she can remember it accurately. And she does do that, and it's published in the book, and you try to make sense out of it. And it's difficult because there are no names for the stars or anything. And so Marjorie Fish is, was a brilliant woman who uh, read about this, uh, visited Betty, and built the total last number I had was 25 different three-dimensional models of our local galactic neighborhood, little beads hung on nylon fish cord, and trying to get a picture, see if she could find a three-dimensional analog to the two-dimensional drawing. And after an enormous amount of work, having some of it having to be redone because our distance data was lousy back then, now we have the Hipparco satellite, which gave us millions of measurements, which we didn't have back then. Anyway, out of this work, she was able to find one pattern that matched what Betty drew, angle for angle, line length for line length, and that tells us that the base stars are Zeta-1 and Zeta-2, that's the Greek letter Zeta, reticuli, constellation of reticulum. I can't tell you to go outside and look because you can only see it from below the equator. Well, I published an article in Saga Magazine with Bobby N. Slate-Geronda, who is no longer with us, in the early 70s, uh, 73, I think, in which we reviewed Marjorie's work and that brought Zeta Reticuli into the light. And then I convinced the editor, then editor of uh, Astronomy Magazine, Terence Dickinson, Canada's finest astronomy writer as far as I'm concerned. But then he was editing Astronomy Magazine. He did an article which led to more response than any other article they'd ever published, including from Carl Sagan and a bunch of people, about Marjorie's work. And they sold 10,000 copies of the 32-page fancy color package of the original article and the subsequent letters. So that put Zeta Reticuli on the map. And it is amazing to me that none, none of the people touting Zeta Reticuli ever said anything about it before that original article was published, even though the Hill case took place in 61. If these people were in touch with Zeta Reticulans, which some of them claim to have been, and they should have been aware of that long before Friedman and uh, Bobby and Slate Geronda put out their article 10, 10, 12 years after the original experience. So I was skeptical, and also the data that they give about Zeta Reticuli is not current with what we've learned from the Hipparchos satellite. There's a great inconsistency all along the way, and I've seen no evidence that such, well, in one place it's 12, and one it's 14, and one it's nine people. Americans went up there in an exchange program, and some of them came back, and uh, yeah, it's a great story. It sounds like a good science fiction story. But I have not been impressed with the quality of the evidence, and I've been depressed by the fact that some of the supposed data just as inconsistent with what we know to be true now. And that's not be surprising in view of what we were talking about earlier about uh, the quality of information on the Internet. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I've heard other stories that we've had a base on the moon and it got destroyed by the Russians. Uh, you know, there's a load of such stories floating around, but I have a very big gray box. Not black, not white, maybe. I can't prove it's impossible, but that doesn't mean it's real. 
at least as far as I'm concerned. I don't know what kind of logic is. If I can't prove it's impossible, it must be real. Since when? Where did that come from? <laughs> it, it's like on the uh, some of the phony MJ-12 documents. I've been challenged. If you can't tell me who did the phonies, some are real, you understand, but if you can't tell me who did the phonies and why they did it, then I think they must be real. And I find that's hogwash. That's strange that's logic. Yeah, that's very yeah, odd I mean, logic. All kinds of things going on. How can priests attack choir boys? You know, how about serial killers? People like Ted Bundy. People get mad at me for mentioning that. <laughs> well, he was charismatic. He had a lot of women after him. It's really sick. And he had a, It's a true statement. But, Stanton, along those lines, then, uh, we have your big gray box. What's in your box that uh, suggests reality? If you had to look at a couple of cases that you've studied over the years, uh, what do you think constitutes a legitimate UFO case and why? Folks, if you want to learn more about what Stanton Friedman does, go to his website at stantonfriedman.com. That's stantonfriedman.com. That's F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. We now return, ladies and gentlemen, to Stanton Friedman, where he talks about his favorite UFO cases. Well, uh, since I mentioned the Betty and Barney Hill case, I certainly include that one, John Fuller's book. There's a new book by Kathy Marden and myself. She did most of the writing. She's Betty's niece, and it's hmm. called Captured. It isn't published yet, so don't run out and buy it. If you've got a publisher, we'd like to know about it. <laughs> Use them. Uh, an insider's uh, review of the Betty and Barney Hill case. That goes into a lot of things that happened that aren't in the original book and you know, it was a long-time phenomenon. Betty just died a couple of years ago, so mm -hmm. that's one strong case. I like uh, some of the physical trace cases. I like uh, the ones that Ted Phillips has gathered together. I, some people will say, there is no physical evidence. He's only got 5,000 cases. Let's only look at the best 2,000, okay, <laughs> from 70 countries where people see something on or near the ground and after it leaves. Uh, you find physical changes. I like the Delphos, Kansas case just because I had the first test done on the, the soil that was dried out down 14 inches in a circle, 10 feet in outer diameter and about a foot across. I like the radar visual cases. If anybody wants a really good collection of excellent cases, I'd look at Dr. James E. McDonald's uh, paper, his presentation at Congress in 1968 in the congressional hearings. Uh, he's got 41 separate cases in there. I have off-printed a 71-page document, but he's got multiple witness radar visual cases, sightings over big cities, sightings by astronomers, by meteorologists, by pilots. I mean, there's a multitude of cases out there which somehow get ignored by the noisy negativists. There is no evidence. I get so sick of hearing that. You know, what they mean is they haven't bothered to look at it because they know from the start there's no evidence, so I waste my time. And I can keep saying there is no evidence, meaning none has crossed my table, because I won't let it in the door. <laughs> so I, I like the, um, oh, what's the name of it? The, the Rendlesham Forest case is pretty good, but I also like the uh, Gulf of New Mexico case. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data.
Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You know what? Because a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with every specific case, I think I'd like you to give like a short paragraph on each as you mentioned them. But before we do that, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney talking to Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist, UFO investigator. Go to stantonfriedman.com or just check our direct link at theparacast.com to go to his site. But okay, if you can mention a couple of sightings, it's helpful if you just tell a few people what it's about, okay? The uh, the Rendlesham Forest case involved a number of military base people on a big base in England with a, a thing being observed and guys going out, security guys. It turns out there were nuclear weapons in the area, let's put it that way. Uh, and so, you know, there's always concern where you've got nuclear weapons storage about any penetration of the airspace over such a base. Because if somebody can penetrate, that means they could bomb you. And, no, that's terrible, you know. Uh, and so this went on for several hours at night uh, after the security people went out. There were more sightings. And the base uh, lieutenant commander, uh, Halt, H-A-L-T was his name, he uh, went out there. He saw something. He taped a portion of his investigation. And there's a whole book, uh, Left at Eastgate. Uh, and, of course, there are explanations. Oh, that was just the light from the lighthouse offshores if people hadn't seen that all the time and so forth. But it, it involves a lot of people, and some people refer to it as the sort of the English Roswell, although nothing was recovered there. There was higher radioactivity where the thing had landed and so forth. But there's been a lot of effort put on the case. The RB-47, that's reconnaissance plane, out over the Gulf of Mexico, you had a big crew. Well, reconnaissance planes normally have large crews because there's guys working electronics, you know, a dozen people, that kind of thing. They pick up a signal, and they have visual sighting, and the thing moves around to the other side of the plane, and the crews see it. And this lasts for over an hour as it's heading north and over Texas and then over Oklahoma. And there are even some signals received from this besides their own radar reflection, you know, and the ground guys seeing it on radar. And uh, Carl Sagan gave me a quick explanation. Oh, that was spoofing, Stan. That's where you create a false target. I said, Carl, there was a visual sighting. An electronic target cannot be seen, in other words, if you create it artificially. Uh, and then he came up with another explanation, and I had to shoot that one down real quick. And well, I'll have to think about that some more. Yeah, I like the Japan Airline case up in the Alaska. Plane 747 carrying wine, of all things, from Iceland to Japan. It's going to land at Fairbanks. It's out in the middle of nowhere, you know, up there, going across the top. Incidentally, when I went to Hong Kong from Newark, I flew across Siberia, which I hadn't thought about in advance. Yeah, that's a funny feeling, looking down. Whoops, look where we are. Anyway, uh, the crew sees this huge thing, later described as twice the size of an aircraft carrier. That's pretty big. And it's approaching the plane, and they're on... on their trajectory toward Fairbanks, and they report this to the FAA guys down below, and they ask for permission and get it to fly in a circle, and this darn thing flies around with them, station keep, you call it, 
And they're seeing it. The guys on the ground are seeing it. And this thing finally takes off. Now, there are two parts more to this thing. That's a very brief description of a very complicated case. The guys on the ground record all this. They interrogate the pilot when he lands, Mr. Tarachi. T-E-R-A-U-C-H-I, I believe. Uh, Dr. Richard Haynes, who collects pilot sightings, talked to him through an interpreter, and Dr. Bruce McAbee did. And the FAA has to do a briefing in Washington. They bring all the papers there, and people listen to what they have to say, then grab all the papers and tell them it never happened. Now, the noisy negativist came up with a very easy, sensible explanation, Phil Class and company. What they were seeing was indeed extraterrestrial. It was Jupiter and Mars. Now, when you think about that, airplane radar is not good enough to pick up Jupiter and Mars, and Jupiter and Mars are not known for being able to circle around the plane that's flying in a circular path uh, near Earth. Uh, you know, it's remarkable for those two planets. So that case is an excellent one. I like the mothership case in the Yukon. Uh, Martin Jacek, a civil engineer, is another big thing. I mean, twice the size of an aircraft carrier is pretty big to me, but... And I was up there, and we visited the area where this happened. It's out in the middle of nowhere. He was able, Martin was able to interview like 10 different sets of two or three people each. Most of them stopped. There's one place where you get gas and have something to eat, you know, where there's nothing 50 miles either side of it. And he went there, and they told him about other people who stopped, and he talked to them. To make a very long story short, this, there was this huge thing. It wasn't doing much of anything, surfing around the lake and stuff. But it was so big that he was able, because he's a civil engineer, to triangulate. And this darn thing was between six-tenths and 1.2 miles long. And that's impressive to me. Something what shape was it? I, I want to say dirigible shape, but that, that's crudely putting it. But, yeah, uh, that's close to it. Basically the prototypical cigar shape. Yeah, yeah, and I, I can't give you, I don't have the report in front of me, and there are drawings mm -hmm. in it, and it's, it is available. But Martin's a, a super investigator, and the fact that he was able to talk to so many people, uh, people in the Yukon are friendly, you know. Uh, they're not worried about the guy next door shooting them and raping their daughters and stuff like that very much, anyway. <laughs> uh, those cases I like. Uh, there's a whole bunch others, I guess, if I were to... Uh, try to sort them all out. I, I particularly like radar visual cases. I like cases where you have a lot of people involved. You know, it, it's helpful. The landing cases in France, Jacques Vallée put together a whole long group of uh, landing cases where humanoids were observed and stuff. That was uh, part of the uh, European flap in the 50s, Stan? Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. what I'm saying is there's nothing new here in the sense that we've been seeing these things for a long time. And what I am working on that is really convincing and depressing at the same time, uh, there's a new book going to be out by the end of the year called Shoot Them Down by Frank Faschino, Jr., who spent about 14 years on the Flatwoods Monster case, Flatwoods, West Virginia, September 12, 1952. And it was a first edition, which the publisher screwed up, but I won't go into that. But anyway... Uh, some people were unhappy about our, I wrote the forward in the epilogue, about discussion about dogfights, for want of a better phrase, between UFOs and military planes. And, oh, no, there weren't any such dogfights. That's a bunch of baloney, blah, blah, blah. So we sought out help, which we got from people like Dr. David Rudiak and from Barry Greenwood and others who have collected huge amounts of clippings over the years. 
you know, you can fill a whole room with this stuff. To make a long story short, and I had mentioned in, in the uh, epilogue, I guess, that I had heard of a half a dozen cases of more planes going up after a UFO than came back down. And a couple of them, clearly, they had been destroyed by the UFO. Anyway, uh, when these protests were heard, we collected all this other data, and there's no question, A, that orders were issued to shoot them down if they don't land when requested to do so. This is 52. There was even a letter from the head of the American Rocket Society to President Truman, and I've seen the letter, um, saying he didn't think that was a good policy. This subject was discussed. And of all people, General Roger Ramey, who was involved with the Roswell case, and he was in Fort Worth, head of the 8th Air Force. He came up with the uh, weather balloon radar reflector combination, stupid explanation. He was quoted by this time as a major general in 52 that uh, we had scrambled jets hundreds of times hmm. to go after UFOs and had been unsuccessful in you know, capturing any. Now, on top of that, Frank and I started looking around, and we found hundreds of reports of airplane crashes, military airplane crashes, in the United States in the early 50s. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive, you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in a grand and science fiction tradition. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Just a reminder, if you're new to the show, visit our website at www.theparacast.com. That's www.theparacast.com. There you can download past episodes of the show, check out our message boards, and if you have a question or a comment, write us at news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney, premiering in addition to our internet Digs on KLAV Radio AM in Las Vegas, Nevada. So we've come to Earth, sort of, if you assume we're now on Earth, <laughs> and we're talking about some very incredible UFO cases with Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist, UFO investigator. Go to stantonfriedman.com for more. So we're talking about more planes going up after UFOs, fewer planes coming back. All right, this is frightening. Yeah, it is frightening, and uh, I now list that as a sixth reason why the government doesn't want to tell us what it knows, and I'm really looking forward. I expected in the mail. I was gone this past week, but it isn't here yet. Uh, Tim Good of England has a new book out, 
need to know. He talks about airplanes that uh, disappeared. And I mentioned crashes. Um, three pilots, each with more than 100 missions in uh, Korea, came back to the United States in the early 50s and crashed. In terms in the New York Times, if you go to look at their crash reports, uh, you'll find terms like disintegrated, disappeared. And a guy, I wrote a column in the MUFON Journal about uh, this business, and a uh, guy contacts me, tells me a close uh, buddy of his from Purdue University uh, in the early 50s had come back from being a pilot stationed in Europe, and all he would say about UFOs was that we lost 20 planes to them. Hmm. And that's a rather shocking statement, so I managed to locate Detective Friedman at work here. The guy's a son and then his, his wife and she's looking for papers right now because I want to know what group he was in. She, he had said something to her about it. So that's scary business. But, you know, why would a pilot who's evaded MiGs, 100 missions in Korea, and MiGs weren't bad airplanes, incidentally, uh, come back and crash? Three of them do that? That's a little remarkable. So there's uh, a lot going on that's just beneath the surface. In Frank's book, uh, Shoot Them Down, it should be out in a limited edition before the end of the year and then full-blown next year. Lots of visuals. He's done so much work on this case. We're talking and here, I, and let's get this straight, that are we trying to really shoot fire at these craft or whatever? Is that what we're trying to do? We're trying to shoot down the flying saucer. When I say we, I'm including us and the Brits and the Russians are stories out of Russia, too. And you can imagine if the pilot returned fire, the alien, would be reluctant to talk about that. And uh, there's a book out, uh, By Any Means Necessary, by William Burroughs, B-U-R-R-O-W-S. It's been a report of the New York Times, Washington Post, etc. A 2001 book, By Any Means Necessary, in which he relates the story of 160-some crewmen of reconnaissance planes that were tickling the Soviet Union and China and Korea and occasionally got set, shot down. Not one word in public about what happened to those guys until 2001, where a big conference was held, and they gave medals to the families. These were people who were shot down in the 40s, 50s, 60s, hmm. before we had strong satellites and stuff. What I'm saying is anybody who thinks the government wouldn't keep this stuff secret doesn't know the government. And, uh, you know, it's nice for the family to get a medal. So that's what happened to my husband. They never told the families. And unfortunately, apparently... The crews bailed out on some of these planes, and uh, the prisoners were captured and sometimes tortured is the word we get. Now, I must admit, the United States shot down some Russian planes, too, and said nothing about that either. This goes to the question of, can you keep secrets? Of course you can keep secrets. Anybody who thinks you can't is being totally unrealistic. Well, speaking of secrets, of course, we have the Roswell thing, and we've heard different stories. By the way, we had Jesse Marcel Jr. on the show just a few weeks back, and he has... And he's told you about his new book coming out sometime soon. Yes, he did. Mm -hmm. So, Eric... Yeah, I wrote the forward for that, too, incidentally. Oh, okay. So lots of new books coming out this fall, but in any case, obviously a lot of sincerity there, and we have the Roswell case, and it seems that every few years, the Air Force has to come back with a Another balloon explanation. I'm waiting for number five. I mean, okay. we've already had four explanations, you know. 
And that, that in itself ought to make some people suspicious. I mean, first we say very clearly we've recovered a flying saucer, a flying disc, a flying platter, it said in one newspaper, okay? And then we have, oh, no, sorry, it's just a radar reflector and weather balloon. And then we have, oh, you know what? It was a mogul balloon, a super secret mogul balloon, except several of the launches were just left to lie out in the desert. And it, nothing fits uh, for mogul. The characteristics of the material, the witnesses' uh, description of what was found, and all this sort of thing. And then we have my all-time favorite, the crash test dummy stuff. Uh, <laughs> my favorite because no dummies were dropped until 1953, six years after Roswell. Well, those were, they were testing crash test dummies at Area 51, right? Is that what happened? I'm kidding. <laughs> Yeah, all over New Mexico, except, and they got a map that they used three times in their report, except near either of the two crash sites, out in the plains of San Augustine or near Corona. No dummies were dropped there, but that's okay. And what I really like is Colonel Kittinger, Joe Kittinger, great pilot, no question about that. He was a redhead when he was young. And so the Air Force brings him forward to say, hey, you know that story about a redhead at Roswell Base Hospital? That was me. One of our balloon baskets uh, keeled over when it landed out near there, and one of the guys had his head injury, and I was with him, and we went to the Roswell Base Hospital. Ha, ha, ha. And the only trouble is that happened in 1959. So we got time travel for crash test dummies only six or seven years. And for Joe Kittinger, we got 12 years. I mean, so what will explanation five be? You know, I'm waiting with bated breath. <laughs> but why do they continue oh, wait, to dredge this up? Why do they continue do. to dredge this up? What's the because motivation? There's, there's so much pressure. They want to get the media on their side to reinvigorate the notion that there's nothing to saucers. And, you know, I don't know how much disinformation the government has put out, but I suspect it's very substantial. Uh, they've done that with lots of other things. Hmm. You know, it's some of the MJ-12 documents, the, the ones that I say are phony. What the heck, if good stuff gets out, if you put out garbage that serious researchers like myself can show are garbage, then some people say, well, that means all that stuff's garbage, right? If one abductee, one claimed abductee, turns out to be uh, making up a story, that means all abductees are lying, right? I mean, what can I say? Uh, this is false reasoning to the nth degree, and I, I legitimately am thinking that they might come up with some other explanation. Well, uh, Nick Redfern has come up with another explanation, which some people like much more than aliens. These were handicapped Japanese prisoners who had been uh -huh. used in nasty experiments to find out about radiation and its effect for an aircraft nuclear propulsion program, and it was a Fugo balloon carried aloft by a Horton Brothers flying wing. I'm sorry. I, I, there's an article on my website about that one, too. John Keel, by the way, believes that, or at least he said that. Well, that wouldn't surprise me. Nothing that John Keel believes would surprise me. I, I mean, I had a letter, we had some correspondence back a number of years ago, and in one letter, he managed to get four major mistakes relating to Roswell and, and, and MJ-12. Like, he had Goddard doing his experiments up near Aztec and somehow linking that to the Roswell crash story when, in fact, Goddard did his experiments near Roswell, 300 miles away. Now, there's a Goddard High School down there and a Goddard Museum and stuff. 
he said that uh, I was totally wrong when I said plutonium was uh, manufactured for use in nuclear weapons. Well, I don't know what he thinks it was used for, but that was the reason we spent all that dough. Well, he sure. said all government documents in 47 were uh, 8 by 10. They were saving paper. I had a bunch of 8.5 by 11 documents, but I go to archives. I've been to 20 of them, and uh, John apparently does not. He also said that because J. Edgar Hoover was so anti-Semitic that he Jews didn't get security clearances. Uh, back in the 50s. Well, I'm Jewish, and I got a few clearance, and I worked with plenty of guys who were Jewish. So where's all this come from? I mean, it's research by proclamation. Uh, John Kale, by the way, is the author, for those who don't know who he is, of The Mothman Prophecies, which they made a yes. rather bad film about with Richard Gere, and uh, Our Haunted Planet, and a lot of other stuff. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Pietney. We're talking to Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist, UFO investigator. Go to stantonfriedman.com. And I'm glad he spent this amount of time with us. I hope he can stay for another section or two because I have a couple of thousand more questions and maybe I can get to two or three of them. Let's talk about okay. government secrecy. Now, some have suggested that when you get these crazy stories online like Serpo, that is is the government in action putting out this nonsense so that we will get so hung up in bogus claims, bogus mysteries that will ignore the real truth that's right in front of us. In other words, hiding in plain sight. We have real facts. We have all this other nonsense. What do you think about the government's participation in secrecy as it relates to UFOs? Well, in the first place, it's clear that despite the claims of the noisy negativists that governments can keep secrets, uh, not only government. I mean, look at the National Reconnaissance. Uh, well, they've changed their name slightly. Office or organization. They revealed last year that they'd launched seven poppy satellites in 2004. No, in between 1962 and 1971. These are very expensive. They're listening for uh, electronic stuff messages as well as radar from Soviet ships around the world. Business end can run half a billion dollars on these things. The first public discussion of them was in 2005, launched in 62 to 71. There were thousands of people involved with those programs. Like I say, these are complicated kind of things. Another example, the Naval Research Lab built the Corona satellites. The first 12 were failures. They were scientific satellites. The 13th one worked and gave us more information about Soviet electronics than all the U-2 flights that had preceded it. When was that? Oh, 1960. They first mentioned it in 1995, 35 years later. The Manhattan Project involved 60,000 people. Uh, most of them had no idea what they were working on. You know, move the dial this way or the, <laughs> the handle this way when the dial shows, that kind of thing. So governments can keep secrets, those 160-some airmen that I mentioned. Uh, and it is the job of government to put out cover stories. 
first atomic bomb test was seen 100 miles away. Ammunition dump had blown up. Fortunately, nobody was injured. That's <laughs> what they said. I've, seen, I've got the newspaper articles, you know. So things like that happen all the time. Uh, we put out all kinds of disinformation during World War II. Uh, we even had a, a, the Brits put together, they had a body of somebody who had died. They, in his uniform, they put some phonied up letters and stuff. They made it seem real great, and they dropped the body off near Spain, where they knew the Germans would get it because the Spanish and Germans were working together. And it strongly implied, not explicitly, but a clever intelligence analyst would figure it out, that the invasion of Europe would take place at Calais. And that was part of a larger deception. They, they turned spies who were sending back messages implying the same thing. And even put, built wooden tanks and wooden structures where it looked like General Patton up north was going to attack Calais. Now, who cares? Well, as it happens, Hitler believed the disinformation. And when the generals, when Normandy landing took place, wanted him to send in the reserves, Oh, no, 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 we can't do that. That's not the real landing. The real landing is going to be up here at Calais. we got to hold these reserves back. They think they can fool us. Uh, you know, what can I say? Uh, thank goodness this information worked. And so, you know, it, it, it's a, this information is part of the picture. It wouldn't surprise me if the Serpo stuff, I mean, sometimes it's blatant, like the uh, crash test dummies and all that stuff. The uh, six-foot-tall dummies who somehow, who weighed 175 pounds, who somehow morphed into three-and-a-half, four-foot-tall aliens. I mean, that's pretty neat trick. Uh, but sometimes it's much more subtle than that. And uh, it's part of the game that's being played. I went to the University of New Brunswick Library. It's a mile from the house. There's several books on disinformation and many examples over the past hundred years. And, you know, we can say, isn't that terrible? And yet we realize that, hey, uh, if the Germans had realized that we had broken their codes and had 12,000 people at Bletchley Park working on decoding and disseminating, translating, etc., they would have changed the codes and we would have cost us a lot of lives. But you can understand a need for that. All's fair in love and war, what did somebody say? And especially when we were getting our tail kicked at the first part of the war. You know, freedom, democracy, all those things would have gone down the drain. And we'd be speaking German. <laughs> so, of course, Stanton, the conspiracy theorists would probably point out that, well, it's not like the government was keeping it secret. Uh, all of these things are under the auspices of a secret government that lives underneath of the regular government. I mean, the hole just keeps getting deeper and deeper the more you dig. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, secret government is a nice phrase, isn't it? It conjures up all kinds of things, you know, a, a pseudo-president. Well, that's what we have now. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> no, that's, many of us would agree with you on that, Stan, so that, that, that sounds uh, more realistic than a lot of what we're uh, talking about. <laughs> no, uh, look, in a sense, there is a secret government just from the very fact that the black budget is estimated, it's not under direct congressional control, right. is estimated to be between, oh, 30 and $50 billion a year. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a lot of money to me anyway. Oh, yeah. More than I make in a year, for sure. And <laughs> so if Congress doesn't know where the money is going, you know, in, in a sense, there is a lot of secrecy going on beneath the surface. On the other hand, I certainly expect that groups like Majestic 12 which name has undoubtedly been changed, 
especially since my first book came out, of course, Top Secret Magic, <laughs> um, first book about it. But what, what I'm trying to say is that this information is part of the game. And for people who wonder about such things, let's face it, there is no way to tell your friends without telling your enemies. And anybody who thinks the United States doesn't have enemies is living in a dream world. We've got them all over the Yeah, now more than ever, I would say. Mm -hmm. So it's natural that you don't want the other guy to know, for example, that you know something. We learned a lesson World War II when the Russians had spies at Los Alamos who shortened the time for them to develop their first A-bomb, which was tested in 1949, uh, probably by a year to two years, various estimates. They weren't stupid, but it sure helps to have some shortcuts, not have to make all the same mistakes as the other guy did on the way to victory, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so we know that it is important that the other guy doesn't know what we know, not only about what we're doing, but what about they're doing. So. This information is part of the equation. Do I really think there's a secret government calling all the shots? No. But it would be perfectly normal for the National Security Council to be able to set up special study projects, if you will, where people are looking in a number of different directions, some scary, some not so scary, but where we can't tell Americans because to do so would be to tell Russians and Chinese and India and all of the, the uh, Arab world, uh, etc. And, you know, the funny thing is they're much better at monitoring us than we are at monitoring them. That's a scary thought. Well, it's true, though. I mean, look around. I, I was, uh, where was I? At the airport. Here in Fredericton, New Brunswick, population 50,000. Multi-ethnic, like you wouldn't believe. Just look around mm -hmm. the airport. Chinese, Japanese, uh, Africans, uh, a whole bunch of different groups. So anybody can blend in here, but Americans don't blend in so well in many other countries. Uh, tall, blonde Norwegians don't get passed off very easily in China. <laughs> We're not going to mention that at all or get into more detail about blending in. Maybe the aliens have to also blend in. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Just a reminder, if you're new to the show, 
Visit our website at www.thepowercast.com. That's www.thepowercast.com. There you can download past episodes of the show, check out our message boards, and if you have a question or a comment, write us at news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. And we'll now tell you you're in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist, UFO investigator. Go to stantonfriedman.com to learn more about the things he does or check on the link at theparacast.com. And as we continue here, we have a few other things we want to talk about. And we were talking about the government and the government keeping secrets and all that stuff. So what does the government know? Has the government talked to the aliens yet? Maybe they don't have a secret program with Serpo, but how much do well, they know? I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. I wish I did. But we've we got to be careful with the use of the term government. That implies that everybody who works for the government knows everything the government is doing, and nothing could be further from the truth. The need-to-know concept, that's the title of uh, Tim Good's book, Need to Know, is paramount when it comes to security. Uh, you can have an appropriate security clearance, let's say a secret clearance or even a top-secret clearance. That does not give you access to everything that's secret or top-secret. You have to be certified as approved for access to a particular program. And so are there small groups of people who know a great deal that we don't know anything about? It's very, I think so. Uh, one of the interesting things about the Majestic 12 group was that none of those people the members, the original 13 that we know about from the Eisenhower briefing document, are elected officials, were elected officials. They were people who didn't have to run for election. They didn't have to speak out publicly about all kinds of things and put up with press conferences and all that sort of stuff. They were people who had authority to do things. Uh, General Nathan Twining, you know, was head of the Air Materiel Command, had his own airplane, one that converted B-17 from the war. So he wasn't making a whistle-stop tours talking about things. He was doing his job. And the same with the other people. Van Bush was known for secrecy, Dr. Vannevar Bush. Uh, head of the Carnegie Institution, but during the war, much more importantly, he was head of the Office of Scientific Research and Development, in charge of things, little projects like the development of radar, of the atomic bomb, of the proximity fuse, about 80 other projects. He wasn't running around the country talking about what he was doing, and everybody else on that group were people who had in tight connections with the government, especially during World War II, that's how they got tested, so to speak. But no public, no publicity seekers on there. And they had a disinformation specialist, Dr. Donald Howard Menzel, professor at Harvard University Astronomy Department. And some people get mad at me when I say he led a double life. Well, nobody knew until I found it by getting permission from three different people to see his papers at Harvard archives that he spent decades working for the National Security Agency. They had a top-secret clearance with the Central Intelligence Agency, that he taught cryptography. Uh, you know, here was a man who was up to his ears in classified work for the government about which nobody knew. It isn't mentioned in an appreciation of him eight pages after his death in the 70s in the Sky and Telescope. There was a 100th anniversary of his birth celebration, going through all the wonderful things he'd done in astronomy and stuff. Not one word. 
about his post-World War II activities for the government, yet in retirement. He earned more money from those activities than he did from his Harvard pension. So, you know, these were people who could keep secrets, who didn't need to be out in the public eye for the secrets they knew. They may be out there for something else. He wrote three anti-UFO books talking about disinformation. I think that was his assignment. He'd also written science fiction, the only one of the 12 who had. So well-suited to putting out garbage, and he did, lots of it. Some of it much poorer physics than he, he knew better than that. Well, then it gets really strange, Stan, when we start bringing in names like Philip Corso and the whole potential connection to private industry, where things really get murky. And, you know, I actually, I read your review of Corso's book, and uh, like you, I was very interested to do some research into the actual timelines of some of these technologies that were claimed to be repurposing of alien technology, and not a lot of that makes a whole lot of sense. You're right. You're right. Uh, as you know, uh, and it's one of many articles on my website. Um, uh, and one that particularly greets me is uh, talking about the chips for what do you call the um, the big chips, the super chips? We go integrated circuits. Integrated circuits. Integrated circuits. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The guy won a Nobel Prize for work he did in 1958 on those. Now, that was two years before Corso became part of the staff under General Trudeau at the Pentagon. Now, the Foreign Technology Group only had two people in it, and he was the junior officer at the beginning anyway. So he's taking credit for work, sifting it into industry. That was done two years before he even got there. Mm -hmm. I, I have trouble with that. And I recognize that he was an old man at the end there, and that he was not in good health. And, you know, why he signed a sworn statement that he'd been a member of the National Security Council when he never was, I don't know. Probably would have signed anything put in front of him, but I contacted the Eisenhower Library and was able to show that, no, he not only wasn't a member, but he never attended a meeting of it. And so I don't understand Corso. Uh, maybe one to leave a legacy for his kids, you know. Uh, maybe there was there was a, a deal supposedly five books and movies about uh, what was it? I worked with giants, something like that, about his work in mm. the intelligence community. I mean, here's a guy. Corso says that old J. Edgar Hoover was a buddy of his, and Hoover, the FBI files say Corso was a rat. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a conflict, isn't it? Mm. Uh, seems so to me. So. We, people in the field, uh, put out our own share, I guess, of disinformation without even the government half trying. Well, what about Corso? Was he a disinformation artist then? Maybe he was part of the program to bring out that book and let everybody argue about, as we're doing right now, about whether what he said was true or not. And in the end, it had nothing to do with what was really going on. You know, I think we're talking more about an ego problem than we are about a disinformation problem. I think he had alienated a lot of people. You know, he was big on the um, Korean War prisoners being carted away by the Russians, which maybe they were. Uh, but he was a, a publicity seeker. And I think in his last years, generals don't like to be forgotten. He wasn't even a full colonel until he got out of the military. He was a lieutenant colonel which other people who have been in the military have strongly said, hey, that tells you something, Stan. Uh, only a few become colonels, the really top guys do, lots of lieutenant colonels around. And so 
you know, maybe it has something to do with wanting to show the world that he was really somebody. I don't know. I liked him. I met him. I, nice guy. <laughs> you know, what can I say? A little careless when he was on public on radio programs saying some strange things. But I, I think at the time the, the book was going on, I think he was not fully clear on the difference between, between what he imagined in his head and what he was saying. Hmm. A little wishful thinking there. And, you know, some people may have much stronger opinions than that, but I don't think of him as an evil man, in other words. So we don't assume then that he was part of the government disinformation campaign. He was just an individual who maybe was trying to, at least according yeah. to you, enhance his experiences for posterity. And make some bucks for his kids. And who could blame anybody for that, you know? The book was a bestseller. Indeed it was, I yes. He, I don't think he got much of the money, unfortunately, because of the legal tie-ups with this organization that was going to publish all these other books and all the rest of that. And, you know, Senator Strom Thurmond withdrew his forward for the book, which probably helped sales in Boston anyway. <laughs> or a lot of places. <laughs> in the blue states. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Stan, are we ever going to get to the bottom of what's really going on? When you say well, society, we, you know, society, are we ever going to actually okay. know what this is really about? I, I'm still an optimist, you know. I'll tell you, one of the reasons is that people are so disenchanted with the government now, you know, the weapons of mass destruction that weren't and stuff like that, that it may be that some wise young reporter with a wise editor will decide that, you know, maybe we should really be looking at this. And if they did that, put some effort, you know, like the political Watergate, Woodward and Bernstein and stuff, they could blow the lid off the cosmic Watergate in six months. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Just a reminder, if you're new to the show... Visit our website at www.thepowercast.com. That's www.thepowercast.com. There you can download past episodes of the show, check out our message boards, and if you have a question or a comment, write us at news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have one more session to go with Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist, UFO researcher, author of a number of books, and also you can find more about the things he does at stantonfriedman.com. Check out the 74,000 listings under his name at Google, or even easier, just click on his listing at theparacast.com. Okay, the Cosmic Watergate, 
the alleged attempt to go after full disclosure. So is this going to happen in our lifetime, your lifetime, my lifetime, David's lifetime? I'm I'm certainly hopeful that, especially with things like the book I mentioned before, the by any means necessary, good scholarship, respectable writer, goes in the chapter and verse on the cover-up of these deaths of the reconnaissance plane crews. Uh, some as long as 50 years we're talking about. That gives me a sense of optimism and the willingness in the last six months or so for some of the media people to open their eyes. You know, it's not just Democrat versus Republican, but there's a lot of recognition that we've been had, that people have been told lies, misrepresentations, and that it's cost. You know, pretty soon the total of guys killed in uh, Iraq is going to exceed the number of people killed in uh, 9-11. Yeah. And to what good came of it of all, said somebody in a famous poem. So I think that disenchantment might benefit those who are able to uh, really dig into things. <laughs> I had an interesting comment that this fuss about John Bonet's uh, non-killer uh, obscured uh, bad publicity that would have otherwise been taking place about other stories. <laughs> That's a sad comment, but uh, so I'm still an optimist, and I wouldn't be doing this if I weren't. So we're hoping here that maybe there'll be full disclosure. What about people like Dr. Stephen Greer, who's also been on the show, and he has his disclosure project? Do you think he's in touch with people who can make a difference? Well, okay, two different kinds of people he's in touch with. One is witnesses. Uh, people who've had experiences and been willing to come forth. That, that's one. And the other is the people he supposedly briefed and told all about and all these, uh, another ego trip on the big shots in the government. And I've seen a letter from, uh, what was his name, the guy who was head of the CIA who said Steve totally misrepresented their interaction and stuff like that. I'm not mm-hmm. a big fan uh, for several reasons. One, I think it's a mistake to mix two different, entirely separate questions. As the government developed free energy, and you know, free energy is never free. The sun is free, but the converters aren't, you know. Uh, and as the government covering up flying saucers. And I have no idea why one would want to merge these two questions, because he's never provided evidence for the, the free energy. He's talked about it, says he has, but he hasn't provided any evidence. Second, he hasn't done a good job early on, at least, of vetting the people that he brings forward, you know, checking on their backgrounds and stuff. He's willing to accept anybody who came forward with a story. Uh, that's not good policy because one rotten apple spoils the bushel. Third, he didn't use the government's own documents to do either of two things. One, to make the case that some UFOs are alien spacecraft, things like Blue Book Special Report 14, the Condon study, and the congressional hearings. And he didn't use the blacked out, whited out NSA CIA documents to establish the cover-up. And I, I think those are serious mistakes because the press likes more than people just talking. Uh, also, I was really put off when he was going to offer a seminar for people on a weekend at his farm in Virginia. Uh, it was only 600 bucks, and he'd tell you everything he knew about the cover-up and everything, but you'd have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Hmm. And I, for the head of the disclosure project, making people sign a non-disclosure Non-disclosure, that seems odd. It, it does seem odd. And yeah. Uh, I've heard Steve speak. He's a charismatic kind of guy. But in talking to press people who have talked to him, they're singularly unimpressed in many instances. 
this because Steve seems to be having an agenda for Steve, and he's good at raising money. And I guess I shouldn't complain about somebody being good at raising money, but what's he been doing with it, you know, besides raising more money? Uh, and so I'm not a fan. Uh, and like I say, I have heard him speak. We spent some time together at various and sundry functions out west and stuff. We even drove from Las Vegas to your area 51 to the little alien with all Larry King show was done. <laughs> he and I were both on with like Kevin Randall and Glenn Campbell. And so we had a time to talk about things. So to each his own, I guess. But, and I haven't seen concrete results from the big disclosure program. And I would be much happier if he had had a better focus on what he is doing. Hmm. What is Stanton Friedman's proposal for full disclosure? How do you think it can be done if it's going to be done? Well, I don't think you're going to get full disclosure because I don't myself want us to be told all the technology we've learned. And you say, my goodness, Stan, you want to cover it? Look, if we have figured out better ways of uh, detecting strange vehicles in the air, should we put that out where Osama can get a hold of it? If we've developed new technologies, and any new technology almost can be used for military purposes, should we put it out on the table where the other guy doesn't have to do the work to get it, just buy it? I don't think so. So I, I don't see full disclosure. Do I think, uh, yeah, I think we will see disclosure of the fact that the planet's being visited. You know, what was it? The next generation after Moses went into the promised land because they weren't spoiled by all the information that went beforehand. Uh, I think that we're getting rid of the guys because we're dying who were unwilling to accept the notion that man isn't alone. Uh, I think, you know, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson can say we're the only intelligent life in the universe. I don't believe them. They have said that. They are good friends in high places. But the attitude, I think, is changing sort of year by year. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, desegregation in the South. The places where it worked best, where you desegregated schools, grade one this year, grade one and two next year, grade one, two, and three the next year, you're not trying to work on those people who've been around all the time who are probably impossible to change their views. You work on the new generation. You know, and you could say that's what Hitler did, too. Give them the Hitler sure. to hear about the old people. But So I'm saying that today's young people have no problem at all with the notion of there being life all over the place out there. I'm always getting told, hey, with such a big universe, how could we be the only ones? So we're getting, things are getting ready, if you will, for a more open approach on the subject, I think. And I think we can handle it. And there are implications for religion, let's face it. Look how much trouble in the world today is a result of religion. And I'm not just talking about Islam. But, uh, you well, know, no, all religion, yeah, all dogmatic thought seems to be uh, more destructive than it is constructive in the final analysis. Yes, yeah, and that scares me. Uh, yeah. You know, it's not as if the world doesn't have other problems to worry about. You may have noticed we've got some difficulties going on. Out there. Just a few. So I'm still an optimist, and I think if I can find that one journalist who wants a Pulitzer Prize, come on aboard, buddy. Check my website. It's got my email address, fsphys at rogers.com. Let's see what we can do together. Hey, why don't you tell our listeners what 
else we can find on your website and what you've got coming out in the next few months? Well, uh, one thing that I like on there, I mean, I've got a comment about Susan Clancy's book about abductions, uh, terrible book, and I say so and why. I've got a paper, Government UFO Lies, which is a good place for a reporter to start. I enumerate numerous such lies. I have a list of papers, uh, a whole bunch of MUFON papers and others. Uh, I have a specials page where you can get uh, Top Secret Magic and Crash at Corona and my CD-ROM UFOs, The Real Story. A $45 value for 35 bucks, including shipping and handling. And uh, send me a check, post office box 958 Holton, H-O-U-L-T-O-N, Maine. ME 04730-0958. Incidentally, Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, same as two Nobel Prize winners, but it matters if you go to look up my website, www.stantonfriedman.com. So there's a big choice. You know, it depends where you're at. People say, what's the best thing for me to read? I said, I don't know what you know. How can I tell you? (laughs) (laughs) You And forthcoming in the near future will be Shoot Them Down, by Frank Faschino, F-E-S-C-H-I-N-O, Jr., and I wrote the forward in the uh, epilogue. The book captured an insider's look at uh, the Betty and Barney Hill case by Kathy Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N, very active with MUFON and myself, and Dr. Jesse Mars. Dr. Colonel, which do you put first? I don't know. Is it Colonel Doctor or Dr. Colonel? Jesse Marcel, Jr., the book is Roswell. It really happened. And there is one super guy, incidentally. Absolutely. Thank you very much yeah, for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Stanton Friedman Mike. on the PowerCast. Just a reminder, if you're new to the show, visit our website at www.thepowercast.com. That's www.thepowercast.com. There you can download past episodes of the show, check out our message boards, and if you have a question or a comment, write us at news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. Hey, thanks for listening. Next week we'll be featuring Robert Collins, author of Exempt from Disclosure and a new edition is out right now, a second illustrated edition. We'll also be talking about remote viewing, the ability to see things in your mind that are happening somewhere else with Paul H. Smith coming up next week on The Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.